There it is. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're in the book of Revelation chapter 19, which starts with a bunch of hallelujah, hallelujah. There it is in verse one. It's there in verse three. It's there in verse four. A lot of praise for God because he's glorious, because he's judged and his son Jesus has returned to the earth in chapter 19. That's what's happening. And also you'll see the uh, so-called um, Battle of Armageddon, which is really not much of a battle at all. Let me just pull this little piece of paper off here. So in chapter 19, um, yeah, the second coming happens. There's great rejoicing. Verse 7 talks about the wedding of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The bride, that's the church, has made herself ready in verse 7. And they've been given fine linen, that's you and me, given fine linen, clean for us to wear. And it says there, the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, none of which we would have done had Christ not saved us, given us his spirit, given us the ability, the desire, the opportunity to do these good things. Um, so let's pick it up in verse on uh, verse 11. So I know that you're awake, say amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, I see a few amen signs and blessings to all of you. Nice to see everybody. Um, verse 11 of chapter 19 says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and wages war. This is Jesus Christ coming to judge the world and wage war against those that have taken over the world, the Antichrist and his uh, minions, if you will. His eyes, describing Jesus, are like a, a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. We said that's his all-seeing vision and judgment, and also the heads, uh, sorry, the crowns on his head are royal crowns, meaning he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. That's kind of an interesting verse. We talked about that last week. And don't ask me what the name is, because if only he knows, guess what? Joe doesn't know. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. He's the living Word of God. We talk about the Bible as the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God personified in a person, as well as being God in human flesh. Um, let's see. Uh, verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him. This is where we left off last time. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Okay, so you say, oh, there's armies in heaven. That's interesting. Most scholars think these armies in heaven are all the believers who have died previously. If you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, it's all of those people that were alive at the time Christ came back. They're riding white horses with him. There are the armies of heaven. Now you can read this whole passage about the armies and about Jesus who comes to wage war and about the battle of Armageddon. And what you'll notice is there's only one weapon among everybody in the whole army, we're unarmed here. We're just wearing righteous robes because of Christ, also riding white horses. Jesus wins this war single-handedly. Shouldn't surprise us, right? We'll get to that in a second. 
here comes the, so we're unarmed. There's no armor we need to wear because we are eternal. We have eternal life and we are impervious to not only death, but even injury. I don't think you can get a hangnail in heaven. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth, that's Christ's mouth, the rider of the white horse, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, a sword to strike down nations. He will rule them with a raw, an iron scepter or a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What an interesting verse. Okay, let's talk about verse 15. So Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. We saw this in, we'll see it in Revelation 19.21. It's in Ephesians uh other places. So this, that doesn't mean that he's like a buccaneer with the sword, you know, kind of thing. It's, his word is the weapon. You say, was this true in the Old Testament? Jesus spoke, or God spoke, and there was tremendous power. And so the ultimate weapon, the only weapon he needs is that sword, his word. Remember that God created the universe by speaking words right let there be light let there be stars in the expanse of the sky let there be fish teeming in the waters let there be oceans and just speaking it talk about power absolutely incredible interesting that the only thing in creation that's handmade is human beings right he formed adam he didn't say let there be man and there was man let there be woman he would have spent more time on woman, right? Obviously. Um, but he, that's the only thing that's handmade. I just find that interesting. Um, let's see. Keep your finger here and go to Hebrews. You say it's too early for a, a detour. No, not really. So take a left from Revelation. Go back about, I'll say nine books. That's a guess. To Hebrews 4. Hebrews comes right before James. If you find James, take a left. Or if you find... Uh, Titus or Philemon, take a right. Hebrews chapter 4, you all probably have heard this verse uh, before about the word of God itself. Look at verse 12. For the word of God, which would be, we call the Bible the word of God, is that what it is? Yes. But it's also the spoken word. Even if God tells the prophet Jeremiah or somebody to say something, that's also the word of God. Whenever the gospel is preached, it's the word of God. In this Bible study, it's the word of God being preached. What about it, author of Hebrews, verse 12? For the word of God is living and active. That means that the book in your lap is supernatural. It is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the, listen to this, not the deeds, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Boy, talking about get to the root of things. Why is it a double-edged sword? It's interesting that two people can hear the gospel, the same exact words, or read the same passage, and one can fall on his knees and ask for forgiveness and receive Christ, and the other one can thumb his nose at it. The one who thumbs his nose at it, the word becomes a judgment against him, a weapon. It's either a saving medicine, if you will, or a weapon that destroys. Pretty amazing. Um, let's see. Okay, going back to Revelation. 
Um, that's all we wanted to look at in Hebrews. I uh, wanted to talk about that. So Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 8. Um, yeah, I want to go there. If, if you're still in Hebrews, take a left. It's not far. It's just a couple books to the left. Second Thessalonians. You say I turned away from Hebrews a long time ago, Joe. Thanks for letting me know. Okay, Second Thessalonians. Where's my, there it is. Chapter two, interesting verse, verse eight. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the Antichrist. Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with armies, weapons, the breath of his mouth. Isn't that amazing? The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by, by the splendor of his coming. Antichrist is impervious to any um, attempt to overthrow his kingdom. He is invincible, and yet Jesus overthrows him with a word. We're about to see um, even Satan captured in a very unusual way uh, coming up shortly. Okay. Um, this verse 15, go back to 15, mentions this uh, iron scepter or a rod of iron ruling them. Old Testament, you see an iron scepter as something, iron being the strongest metal at the time, where you could just dash, hit things and, and break them to pieces so easily. Um, there's no wishy-washiness about his rule on the earth. He's going to rule them, the nations, strike them down and then rule them with an iron scepter. And then this last verse, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's a picture of grapes being squished in a winepress in the same way that nations will, which have uh, been enemies of Israel and God's kingdom and the church and Jesus. Um, chapter 14 of Revelation talks a lot about that. Okay, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that interesting? Why there? I, I thought about this. Uh, commentators said it's just because it's somewhere that's very conspicuous. It's almost like his little label for people that don't recognize him. You and I will know who he is because we'll be riding in with him on horses. If we're alive at the time, um, we'll see it and we'll see the name as well. Uh, I don't know how big those letters are, and if they're probably re readable in every language that there is. But he's the king of all the kings. It's a, a kind of a a way of saying everybody that thought they were a king that are now realizing they're not. He's the only one, the one king of all the other kings, but he's also the Lord of Lords. All the other religious lords, whether it's Buddha, Muhammad, Allah, they can't compare with Jesus Christ. It's God returning to claim his creation away from the devil and evil men. So that's the description of him. Interesting verse as well, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun. You say, standing where? Near the sun with sunscreen on? In the sun. Now, first of all, if you imagine the sun, um, 
I believe this, the, I, I believe this is true. Do you remember hearing this, that a million earths could fit inside the sun? Anybody else heard that or am I the only crazy person? It's huge. The sun is so much bigger than the earth. It's an amazing thing. This angel is standing in the sun. To me, the sun is so bright, how would you see the angel? The point is, the angel's way brighter than the sun. That's how he can be seen. He's standing in the sun and shouting from the sun in a loud voice to all the birds. Now, what does that symbolize? It's birds, literal birds. We're about to have a supper. Probably when you think of suppers in the Bible, you think of, well, the, the Lord's Supper. Okay, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's two. I'm going to show you there's a few other suppers. This is one of them, and it's not very pleasant. He cried out in a loud, loud verse to all the birds flying in midair. Did you know angels could talk to birds? Come, gather together for the great supper of God. There's another supper. The great supper of God, where, I don't know how to sugarcoat this, but the birds are going to eat the flesh of all these enemies of God, of Christ, who have killed um, Christians, uh, martyred them, persecuted them, uh, refused Jesus Christ. Gather them for the, gather together for the great supper of God, verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. He's not talking about all people. He's talking about all people that are unbelievers. The believers are with Jesus. Um, kind of a strange verse, you have to admit, 17 and 18. So what are the four suppers? There are four. The marriage supper of the lamb is where it's a wedding feast. It's a wedding banquet. Jesus, as we said last week, is engaged to you, to me, to all believers. The bride of Christ is the church. Um, so that's one supper. Then there's the Lord's Supper, which is uh, we do in memory of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, um, the cup and the bread or wafer, whatever it is. But let's turn to Luke 14, I want to show you another supper in a more general sense that doesn't fit into any of these other categories. Luke, Matthew, Mark, then Luke, and chapter 14. I'll give you a second to turn there. It's verse 16 and following, all the way to 24. Luke 14, verse 16. Here goes. Jesus replied a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests so this is a supper at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited come for everything is now ready but they all alike began to make excuses the first said i've just bought a field i must go and see it please excuse me <clears throat> it's a lame excuse right why couldn't he see it tomorrow I have to see it today. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. What's the word here? Priorities, right? God is inviting them to something. We'll see what it is in a minute. And they're saying, I got some other stuff going on that's really a little more important than you, God, no offense. 
And of course, it's a great offense. Verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Lame excuse. The servant came back and reported this verse 21 to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out, uh, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited, invited will get a taste of my banquet. The general invitation for salvation, especially with regard in this passage to the Jews who are invited first, both by Paul and the apostles, but by Jesus. I first must go to the house of Israel. They reject the invitation, mostly, but not all. Okay, go back to Revelation with me. So that is three suppers, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lord's Supper, that general uh, supper, um, and then there's this grotesque one where the enemies of God who are alive at the time of the second coming are eaten by birds. I don't know how to color, to uh, whitewash this. It's grotesque, isn't it? But they have gathered, you'll see in a second, uh, in the broad plain around Jerusalem to fight against the enemy, the armies of the world, to fight against Christ, God, God's people. It's a pretty amazing thing that they would want to go up against God. Um, in this passage in Revelation, the word flesh appears six times, six times for the word flesh, which means the human body, flesh. But in the, in the Bible, flesh is our evil uh, lusts and what have you. We walk by Spirit, not by the flesh, you know, that kind of thing. We walk by sight, uh, by, by faith, not by sight, sorry. Um, all flesh is grass, First Peter 1. So um, these people are refusers of the offer to God. What's interesting is we said there's four suppers. Believers attend three. The general salvation one, the Lord's Supper, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. You get three. I don't want that other one. Do you? Um, <laughs> the flesh of kings and what have you. But everybody attends at least one. If you don't attend those three I just mentioned, you're not a believer. And you become the main course instead of the, instead of the, uh, the person partaking. Kind of a weird thing. Uh, verse uh, 18, so that you may... Verse 17, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, and of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small, doesn't matter, wealthy, powerful, or unheard of. Then I saw, verse 19, the beast, translation from chapter 13, Antichrist. And the kings of the earth, this is the little showdown at O.K. Corral outside of Jerusalem. So there's the Antichrist, he's there. And the kings of the earth, all the sub-kings underneath Antichrist. And their armies, plural. 
This is a huge number of people. Yes, many have already died in the seven-year tribulation. This is the very, very, very end of that seven-year tribulation, by the way. And they've gathered together, verse 19, to wage war against who? The rider on the horse and his army. Jesus. They've got the nuclear weapons. They've got the latest technology and the drones and the bombs and the missiles and the jets. And Jesus has a sword. You'll notice as you read this whole chapter, the whole battle is never described. Neither is the marriage supper of the lamb, if you notice, right? Um, but they both take place. And so with all that as introduction for this battle, the battle of Armageddon outside of Jerusalem, verse 20 is so anticlimactic, it's almost funny. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Just like that. Pretty amazing. Doesn't even say who captured them. Probably Christ himself, but it could have even been an angel. So uh, this is the human race in rebellion against God. God has been patiently waiting. Believers have been patiently waiting. And finally, the day comes when Christ takes back the earth. Remember that when God created the world, he says at the end of the creation account in the early chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, God, remember he creates each thing and it says, and God saw that it was good. Day three, and God saw that it was good. At the end, he says, and God saw that it was very good. It's not good anymore. Hasn't been good since Adam and Eve sinned. They messed up his perfect creation. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, there never would have been death, injury, sickness, stealing, need for Ten Commandments, need for salvation, need for forgiveness. None of that. They would have lived forever in a perfect world. Which means when you and I get to heaven, we're going to have a little talk with Adam and Eve, aren't we, for messing it up? Actually, we won't because every time you and I sinned, we ratified their decision, right? In any case, I'm still reading notes here. So the armies are going to fight Christ there, which is the dumbest thing in the world. Uh, one commentator wrote, never underestimate man's folly, his lack of wisdom, his foolishness, his hatred of God. Another commentary wrote, the incurable insanity of sin against a holy God. Let alone, they've become so callous and so confident, they think they're gonna kill God. Do you remember the 19, late 60s, there was a saying, God is dead? You remember hearing that? I used to think, what an arrogant thing. And then I saw a bumper sticker that said, a few years later, God is back and boy, is he mad. God's not dead, uh, as the movie says. Um, so the human race, for the most part, rejected their God. Living after the flesh, it's time for judgment. Notice in those verses, there was no respecter. God was no respecter of persons. It's kings and generals and the Antichrist and the higher-ups and the wealthy. And then it's the average people that 
didn't believe as well. So a one-sided affair, this battle is a shoe on a bug, and it's over. Simple act of God's judgment. He brings an end to Antichrist's kingdom, his forces, the false prophet. And in the next verse, Satan gets his. And he ushers in the long-awaited era of righteousness, which is chapter 20, among other things. Let's keep rolling. Uh, let's see, the second part of verse 20. Well, verse 20, the beast was captured. It's so uneventful. Just, you're under arrest captured and thrown into the lake of fire with these signs he had performed with the false prophet see that he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image total deception the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur who are these people antichrist and the false prophet you know what they are human beings. Yes, Antichrist is indwelt by, empowered by Satan, but he's a human being. It makes these two, listen, unique because everybody else gets judged in chapter 20. A thousand years later, there's a judgment of the unjust, of the unbelievers, not these two. Antichrist and the false prophet are so evil, God makes a special case for them, throws them alive into the lake of burning sulfur. You say, is that a hot tub where the controls are broken? No, that's hell. We'll see it later in chapter 20. The, the lake of fire, uh, they are not burned up. They're alive forever there. We're gonna meet them again in chapter 20, a thousand years later. And when Satan gets thrown there, and they're still there. Um, okay, I'm just reading notes. Verse, uh, yeah, we're still there. Uh, this is before the great white throne judgment. These two don't even get that judgment. There's no need for that. Um, brimstone, some translations have, is a sulfurous material. Um, in the Bible, when it's united with fire, fire and brimstone, it means judgment and un indescribable torment. Um, there are people that teach, there are non-Christian cults that teach annihilationism. You ever heard of that? That the unsaved, yes, Christians go to heaven, live on the earth with Jesus forever. Unbelievers are judged and they're annihilated. They just go out of existence completely. There uh, is a large church in Chicago. I heard the guy retired now. I want to say his last name is Bell. Anybody know? Who had a huge church and started teaching, uh, Wendy's nodding yes, annihilationism, that there really is no hell. Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. Jesus warns more about hell than anybody else in the New Testament. Why warn about something that isn't real. There's no annihilation. I'm fond of, well, not fond of saying, but I say often, the good news for you is the human spirit is eternal. Even if you die, you will live forever because you're a believer. The bad news for unbelievers is the same sentence. The human spirit is eternal. Unfortunately, they're going to live after they die somewhere else, and it's not pleasant. We'll talk about hell in a second. 
And yes, we do talk about that here. Uh, we talked about a church, just a few of us earlier, that doesn't want to preach about hell because they don't want to offend anybody uh, in our area. Big mistake. So uh, back to verse 20. The beast is captured. They're thrown alive instantly into hell. Verse 21. What about the others? The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Do you remember there's a weird verse in Matthew 24 where Jesus is teaching on the end times. And uh, let's see. And he says, I don't want to get this wrong. It's in my notes somewhere. Uh, well, you know what? Let me turn there because I don't see it in my notes. Yeah, go to Matthew 24. We'll go. We'll do this real fast. And when you hear the verse, you'll go, yeah, I remember that one. Um, Matthew 24. Whoops, wrong chapter. Uh, so he's teaching all about the tribulation, uh, the worst tribulation in the history of the world, verse 21. Um, verse 23, if at that time, if anybody says, look, here's the Christ. Oh, there he is. Don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs, great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, don't go. Here he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. As lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, sudden and totally visible, that'll be the coming of the Son of Man. Here it comes, verse 28. Remember this verse? For wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. This is that supper of God where the birds eat the unbelievers, basically. Um, and there, right after, in, since we're in Matthew 20, uh, 24, immediately after the distress of those days, that's the word for tribulation, some translations have, immediately after the tribulation of those days, there's the time marker, verse 29, do you see it? Matthew totally agrees with John in Revelation. The sun will be dark and the moon won't give its light. Stars fall from the sky, heavenly bodies shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the nations will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He sends his angels with a loud trumpet call. They'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. As an introduction to chapter 20, I'm reading that verse. I want to show you verse 29 again of Matthew 24. Do you see it? When do these things happen? After the tribulation. Do you see that? Um, that's when everyone sees the Son of Man. Okay. Second coming. Everybody agrees, by the way, that it's the second coming. But verse 31 of Matthew 24, some scholars think, me among them, is the rapture. You say, well, no, that's before the tribulation. Watch. He'll send his angels, keyword, with a loud trumpet, keyword, and they will gather, keyword, his elect believers from the four winds, which means on earth, from, and from one end of the heavens to the other. 
He's gathering all believers on the earth and in the heavens that have already died. Uh, I believe the tribulation is something believers go through. It's the one thing I believe that I hope I'm totally wrong on. Um, I used to believe pre-tribulation. We're raptured before. I don't see it in the Bible. Um, the, the teaching of the pre-tribulation rapture started um, gaining momentum in the 1830s. Uh, long story, I won't go into all that now. I'm not going to sell this too hard because I always do and I'm not going to do that. Um, again, it's possible I'm misreading something, but that time marker after the tribulation and then seeing when you go to Thessalonians and you see the rapture, you see angels, trumpet, gathering elect, gathering the believers. If Jesus is, and he is in Matthew 24, teaching on the end times, is it possible? He mentioned the wars, the rumors of wars, the false Christs, the antichrist is mentioned in 24. Is it possible he mentioned all those things and forgot about the rapture before? Is it possible he's warning believers about something they're never going to see anyway? Maybe. Back to Revelation, now that I made everybody angry except two people. So the beast is finally captured. We'll revisit this subject in chapter 20, by the way. Um, so the rest are killed with the sword. And chapter 19 ends on that note. A word from the Lord is enough to stop Antichrist. He could have stopped him at any time, but he gave people as much time as he could. Chapter 20 is the next vision. We commonly, we, we commonly call this the millennium. Mille thousand annum year, thousand year period. There are scholars that quite a few not a lot, but there's quite a few that believe that the millennium, thousand years, is just a perfect number. Ten times ten times ten. It doesn't mean a thousand years. It just means an extended period of time. When we get into this, uh, well, I'll just tell you now. Uh, let's see. The early church, up till the mid-fourth uh, century, believed that the, there was an earthly kingdom that Jesus presided over on planet earth right after the second coming after the tribulation. Okay, so there is post-mill, a-mill, pre-mill. Mill stands for millennium. How many of you have ever heard of those? I'm post-millennial. I'm amillennial. I'm pre-millennial. Okay, post-millennial is the most interesting one to me. I don't see it, but I'm going to tell you what it is. Post-millennials believe, and there are some alive today, and throughout history there have been, that the world will eventually get so much better that Christians will finally take over the world. And we will have such success witnessing to people that there will be two-thirds of the world is Christian, and now three-quarters, and now 98% of the world, we're just going to Christianize the whole world before the re return of Christ. So they would say, 
that we are uh, in the millennium now. When you read the, <laughs> I just saw somebody that went, anyway, the millennium, when you read about the millennium, Satan is bound for the thousand years. When I look around and I read the newspaper and watch the news, I'm thinking, with a chain? How long is the chain? Doesn't seem like he's bound to me. Anyway, a Unitarian named Daniel Whitby back in 1628 started this whole idea of the post-millennial. I love that it's optimistic, right? We tend as Christians sometimes to be so pessimistic, oh, we'll never witness enough to get the world. To... These people are like, no, we're going to do it. We're going to Christianize the whole world. Hope they're right. So chapter 19 for them is the triumph of Christianity. Uh, Dominion theology is also usually post-mill. Okay, amill, also popular position. The most popular is pre-mill. We'll get to that. Amillennialists goes back to the third and fourth century. Um, Amillennialists believe that we're in the millennium now, and we've been there since Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross, amillennialists believe that second that he paid for the sins of the world, Satan was bound. And he's been bound from about 30 AD till now. Again, doesn't look like he's bound to me. Bound, you see in chapter 20, he's bound and he can't deceive the nations any longer. Seems like he's deceiving the nations to me. Uh, seems like he's alive and well on planet Earth. With, uh, with um, Satan being um, bound, what's implied is that demons are bound with him. In any case, amillennialists, uh, some say the millennial, millennium is happening in, he in heaven, but most say it's on Earth and the kingdom of God is within us. When we read about the millennium, you tell me. Um, I want to get to the word millennium again in a second. Um, so um, there's no earthly millennium for them. Uh, but there is a literal reigning of Jesus on the earth described over and over and over and over in the Old Testament and the New. When the lion will lie down with the, you know, all those things, the child will play at the nest of the cobra and people will live long lives. Haven't seen it happen yet. Okay. Um, Pre-mill. Pre-millennial. Pre-millennialists believe that Jesus returns before a thousand-year period. Let me make a timeline in the air here for you. I'm going to do it backwards, hopefully. Death of Christ. Now we're moving forward in time. This is called the Christian age or the age of the church. Before that was the Old Testament age, age of Israel, right? Israel rejects their Messiah. They're kicked out of Jerusalem. They sack the city. The temple's destroyed. It hasn't been rebuilt because they don't need a temple now. Jesus is the temple. Our bodies are the temple. We're in the church age. You with me? The, Jesus died on the cross. We're in the church age. It's been about 2,000 years. Let's just say, Joe's naming dates. No, I'm not. 2040 is the beginning of the tribulation. Okay? I don't think it'll take that long. I think we're in the last days right now, but who knows? At that time, a seven-year period, okay, takes place. 
in which Antichrist rises to power. The last half, three and a half years, is way worse than the first half. Uh, this is a review of Revelation. This will be on the test. You better write it down. At the end of the seven years, um, Christ returns. Somewhere in there, Jesus raptures out the church. Before the tribulation? Yes, please let me be wrong. Middle of the tribulation? Maybe. End of the tribulation? Uh, Post-tribulation rapture people like me believe the second coming is the rapture. We are raptured up to him, we meet him in the air, and then we re immediately return to the earth with him to reign. Um, by the way, we just been through 19 chapters of Revelation, there was no rapture. I believe this is the rapture. Okay, that's enough, Joe, you're overselling it. I know, I know, okay. Uh, so premillennialists believe Jesus comes to the earth and then literally reigns physically, he's here on the earth for a thousand years. And guess who reigns with him? You, even me. Pretty amazing. Um, it's the most literal interpretation of Revelation 20, I'm going to show you. All the, the second century uh, church fathers were pre-millennial, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, a bunch of them. Okay, there's an old saying, when the literal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. I'm going to read chapter 20 now to you, and we'll discuss it. A literal reading of it sounds to me like Jesus, after he returns, second coming, literally reigns on the earth. Old Testament is full of predictions, the Jewish Bible, of a king from the line of David reigning on the throne of his father, David, on the earth. Okay. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Are you still awake? Say amen. Oh, much more awake than the first time. Those of you on Zoom, you doing okay? Okay. And if you're happy and you know it, say amen. Okay. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon. Well, wait, well, who is that? That ancient serpent. Okay. You mean like from Garden of Eden? Yes. Who is the devil or Satan? Is there any question who this is? And bound him for a thousand years. The words thousand years appear in chapter 20 six times. I think John is hammering into my head. It's a real thousand years. Didn't they have words in Greek or Hebrew for a really long time that he could have used? I think it's a thousand years. Okay, so what's interesting is in verses one and two is, who seizes the dragon, the devil? Imagine, what a job. Answer, an angel. An unnamed, nondescript, it's not Michael. I think they would have mentioned Gabriel or Michael. It's not Jesus. He's not an angel. It's just an angel. In the end, under the power of Jesus Christ, Jesus can say to an angel, go get him. And Satan is seized and bound with that great chain. Obviously, it's not a literal chain. Um, 
but maybe it is, who knows? So he's called the dragon, the ancient serpent, going back to the Garden of Eden, the snake in the Garden of Eden, the devil, Satan, Diabolos, and bound him for a thousand years. Well, where did he go? Jail. He threw him, verse 3, into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the, say it with me, thousand years were ended. After that, after what? The thousand years. He must be set free for a short time. This is Satan being bound. Now ask yourself and be honest, has Satan been bound since the cross? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it to me. Uh, what we're about to see is a description of life during the millennium in which there is a totally fair, righteous, perfect government led by Jesus Christ. It's the perfect human government people have waited for the whole time we've been on this ball circling the sun. It doesn't sound like the life since the cross where there's been wars and rapes and murders and Idaho, some, somebody killed those four college students and stabbing them. Oh, Jim, uh, give me your question as, as, as concisely as you can, and I'll repeat it for Zoom. Oh, good point. I didn't even notice that. Jim, you get an A for the day. That's why you're an elder. Jim mentioned that they do have a, uh, a word for a short time at the end of verse 3. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Why not use, but for a long time, he'll be, yeah. Very good. You get an A. Did your wife whisper that to you, or did you come up with that on your own? Okay. He threw him into the abyss, locked it, and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are over. For Jesus to reign on earth, he does not want to have any battling with Satan have to go on. It wouldn't be a perfect world. Listen, the millennium is, a, in a way, the beginning of a reinstating of, a recreating of the world and a reinstating of the Garden of Eden. But it's better. Because the Garden of Eden, Satan was not bound. That's where all the trouble started. Amen? Oh, we're past our time for our break. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Whoops, there we are. We are back. Find your seats, and we'll get started. Okay, we're in chapter 20. Uh, the angel that grabs Satan is anonymous. It's pretty, a pretty amazing job. Imagine being the angel and Jesus says, go get Satan. Oh, they do have treats. I didn't realize there are treats. Wow. Um, what you can learn from this is that if you ever saw, um, if you know Eastern religions, you know about the yin and the yang. Um, it's similar in Hinduism. It's in the Star Wars movies. There's the good side of the force, and there's the dark side of the force, and they're pretty equal. That is not God and Satan. Right? Satan is so much less than God, a created being, Satan is, that 
when it's time for him to be captured and God says, go get him, he just sends one angel to capture Satan. It's an amazing thing to me. Um, the final unimportance of Satan. And he's not God's equal or God's opposite. Remember that Satan is not uh, omniscient, all-knowing. God is. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be in every place at the same time. Um, he's a very exalted angel. You are no match for him and neither am I, but God is, Christ is. Um, okay, the implication is that demons go there with him uh, in this sort of prison, if you will. Um, let's go back to chapter 20 uh, and verse three, where he locks him in the abyss, seals it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Now, this is how metaphorical is this? Is this an actual place or a spiritual place? I don't know. But the point is clear, isn't it? That for a thousand years, Satan can't do anything to deceive or affect human beings. There's nothing he can do. For Satan, this is a big deal. This has never been the case before, right? When has he been bound? Okay, um, a quick thing about binding Satan. You hear Christians more in charismatic Pentecostal churches. We bind you, Satan. I bind Satan. And I, how long does that last if it works? An hour, 10 minutes? And is he bound around the world or just in that room? Or I don't see Christians binding Satan in the Bible. What I see is God binding Satan. The chapter where somebody talks about Satan the most is chapter six of Ephesians. And you know what it says there? Put on the full armor of God. What does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's no great opportunity to go. Just say, I bind you, Satan. I don't see it. Um, okay. After that, see the end of verse three? It's a strange thing. Binds him for a thousand years. Aren't you thinking... Shouldn't he get life or the death penalty like the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown? Why not throw him in the lake of fire right now? Fair question. And the thousand years will be just as peaceful. At the end, he must be set free for a short time. If you know the story, and it comes a few verses later, he is set free. Satan is useful to God. By setting Satan free at the end of a thousand-year period where Jesus has ruled the world perfectly, the amazing thing is Satan, you're about to see, still can get some followers and start a little rebellion, which is quickly crushed again, but it proves two things that God said all along. Number one, the heart of man is people are basically good. Not in the Bible. No, 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 no. There's a, there's a country song, a Christian friend of mine, he's passed away since then. Five, four or five years ago, a, Christ, a country song came out and said, um, people are basically good. You know, it's one of them songs. Not according to the Bible, my little cowboy friend. The heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? After a thousand years of a perfect government, a righteous government, living in total peace, 
Satan comes along and goes, come with me. And there's idiots, sorry, that say, okay. It proves the, the evil nature of mankind. It proves that Satan is not rehabilitatable. Is that a word? He can't, after the thousand years, he can't change his nature and say, you know what? I'm going to bow to Jesus. Satan is not repentant ever. Has to be destroyed. We'll see that in a second. Okay, verse 4. It's judgment time. Verse 4, chapter 20. I saw thrones. Thrones, plural. You see that? On which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Those, plural. Thrones, plural. More than one person's going to judge. We know God will judge the world, biblically. We know that all authority has been given to Jesus to judge the world. So it's Jesus and God for sure. And it sounds like it's more than that. We'll come back to that. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, martyrs, Christians, and because of the word of God, they were killed because of, shows you how much mankind hated the gospel and Jesus, that we want free speech. Unless you talk about that carpenter from Nazareth, we'll kill you. Isn't that odd? Uh, beheaded because of their testimony, because of, of Jesus, the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast. Oh, probably people from the, from the tribulation time and, or its image. They hadn't received its mark on their forehead or their hands. Remember, they came to life. Resurrection, right? When is this again? After the tribulation. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Reigned as in ruled, reigned like a king reigns? Yes. Who does? Believers. Some of which came from the tribulation. There is a school of thought that says these are just the tribulation martyrs. It's not all believers. I'm going to show you why that's wrong. It has to be all believers. Okay? We're talking about an incident that occurs at or slightly after the second coming. Would you all agree? Second coming's chapter 19. Everybody agrees chapter 19, second coming. Okay. There's a, there's a sentence here that's going to seal it for you if you're still mad at me. They came to life, resur resurrection, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. A little parenthesis, verse 5. The rest of the dead... Wait a minute. If this is the believers, who's the rest of the dead? All the unbelievers that have ever lived, ever, ever, ever since the beginning of time. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the, there's that word again, thousand years were ended. Oh, two resurrections. A resurrection of the just believers, yes, and a resurrection of the unbelievers a thousand years later. That's what this is teaching. I'm going to show you Jesus is going to say the same thing in the Gospel of John. But stay with me. The rest of the dead did not come back to life, verse 5, until the thousand years were ended. This is the what? First resurrection. Now, By definition, a rapture is a resurrection. 
where the dead are raised first, and then we who are still alive and remain, I'm quoting right out of 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians, it's a resurrection. This verse says, believers, verse 4, came to life and reigned with Christ. This is the first resurrection. Question. If the pre-tribulation rapture is true, there was a resurrection seven years before this, before the tribulation, and John forgot. And God let the error stay in there? I don't think so. Because the Holy Spirit's dictating what to write every word. This is the first resurrection. Well, you see, Joe, the rapture is different because well, then this is the second resurrection. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay, uh, we're going to take a little detour and look at a couple of verses. Who's on the thrones? The 24 elders are on the thrones, Revelation 4. The apostles are on the throne, Matthew 19, 28. All saints are on the thrones, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3. We will judge even, listen, angels. Blows my mind. Um, we will have power over nations, we're promised. Okay, um, we already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, the granting of resurrections uh, for those who were dead in Christ. Uh, remember Matthew 24, after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened, the son of man will come. All the things we mentioned, angels, the clouds, uh, uh, gathering and resurrection. Um, we already talked about that. So if there's a resurrection before this, this isn't the first one. It's the first one. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Okay, go to John 5. Let's do our some detours now and have a little fun. So in your Bible, John after Luke, John chapter 5. You say, what verse? I'm glad you asked. Verse 28. John, Jesus talking. If you got a red letter Bible, these are red letters. John 5, Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 5 Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, Jesus says, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice in their graves, dead people, all will hear his voice, verse 29, and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That's the second resurrection a thousand years later we're about to read about. Um, okay, now do we want to go to 1 Corinthians? Yes, we do. 1 Corinthians 15. This is good exercise for you to be turning pages like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So take a right, go like four or five books to the right from John, maybe three. 1 Corinthians 15. There are many places where revel resurrection is mentioned in the Bible, but none deal with the subject of revelation uh, of res resurrection like chapter 15 of uh 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 12 uh resurrection in that verse resurrection in the next verse if Christ hasn't been raised verse 14 our preaching's useless it's in vain um if the dead aren't raised he's talking about resurrection Verse 20, but indeed Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
people that are believers that have died. Since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus. For, listen to this, 22, for in Adam, for as in Adam all die, all humans die, right? Walter Martin used to say the death rate is still one per person. Everybody dies of their last injury, accident, or sickness. Okay. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What is that saying? That they're going to rise when Christ comes. See that? When he comes, those who belong to him. Look at verse 24. You know what it should say? Then, after that little resurrection, that rapture, then there will be a seven-year tribulation. Is that what it says? It says, no, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion and what have you. Um, go from here, stay in 15, and start in 51. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. By the way, there are seven trumpets in Revelation. They start in the middle of the tribulation, and they go to the end of the tribulation, right? At which, tribulation, at which trumpet are we going to be raised at? the last trumpet where is that in the seven-year tribulation it's at the end okay at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed believers um, okay we already talked about that now go five or six books to the left uh to first thessalonians first thessalonians to the right after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all that. First Thessalonians. Let's see, do we want to do verse chapter one or do we just, are we going to skip that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll skip that. Okay, chapter four of First Thessalonians. Are you there? Say amen. 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 Okay, it's getting quieter in here. Verse 13, First Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 13, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant, talking to Christians about those who have died, who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no home. Hope, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe God will bring with Jesus, on white horses, we just read about it in 19, those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we're still, we who are still alive, and left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not go before or precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will come down from heaven with a shout, a loud command, with the voice of the archangel. Notice the key words, remember Matthew 24, after the tribulation of these days. There's a trumpet call. Do you see it? Voice of the archangel, loud shout, trumpet call, and then a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, keyword, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Encourage each other with, with these words. Um, now, 
about times and dates. We don't need to write to you, chapter 5. You know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How do thieves come? Unexpectedly, suddenly, right? Thieves don't call and um, say to Les and Diana, Could, can I rob your house Thursday night around 1030? Les is saying, that's good for you. Okay, leave the door open, make it easy on yourself. Unexpected. This is where people get the idea of the secret rapture before the tribulation. Hey, it's unexpected. He comes like a thief. If it was at the end of the tribulation, Joe, everybody would know it's getting really close now. Keep reading. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Look at verse four. Are you a Christian? Are you a brother or sister in Christ? Yes. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of... We won't be surprised. Are you saying you know the day of the hour, Joe? No. But for us, we will be able to read the signs as the Jews should have when Jesus was being born and when his ministry started, and they should have figured it out. <clears throat> Excuse me. We will have some clue about that. Okay. Turn the page. Second Thessalonians. Christ is going to come back. Verse 6, chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, those who persecute you, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When, Paul, we've been waiting. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, visible coming, in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. Chapter 2 talks about the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the rapture in the same sentence in verse 1. Listen again. Second coming and the rapture in the same sentence. This is going to be so good. We'll figure this out. Except Paul made a mistake and the order is reversed. Did you see it? Look at verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Wait, no, it should be gathered to him and then seven years later, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, no, Joe, he's just talking about the rapture here. Is he? Watch. Don't become easily unsettled or alarmed, verse 2, by some prophecy or report. Some people were spreading rumors that Paul says... The rapture's already happened. The second coming, the day of the Lord's happened. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day will not come. Stop. What day? Go back to verse 1. Our being gathered to him and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's the subject matter of verse 1. It continues in this chapter. Don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until. Do you see the word until there? That means he's going to tell you there's some stuff that has to happen before that day shows up. I don't believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. Neither did anybody in the church for 1,800 years that believed the post-tribulation rapture like I do. I don't believe in the imminent return. What's imminent? 
It means he could come at any minute. He could come tonight. I don't believe it. Here's why. Don't let anyone deceive you. That day, what day? The coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. Rapture. That day will not come until some stuff happens. Well, what is it, Paul? The apostasy occurs. The rebellion. The falling away is what the word means. It's a global thing where many that said they were Christians stopped going to church and yeah, I don't believe that stuff anymore. Do you hear about Pastor so-and-so? No. He's not a Christian now. Really? Yeah, his whole church disbanded. They're all, you know, Buddhists now or New Agers or whatever. First of all, there's got to be a rebellion that's falling away. You say, well, wait, that might be happening now. Might, but there's something else that has to happen before the coming of the Lord and the rapture. What is it? And the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, is revealed. Has he been? Who can tell me who it is? Has he been revealed on the news? I didn't see it. If he hasn't been revealed, that day can't come. I don't believe in the imminent return of the Lord. I hope he comes soon, but I don't think he can come tonight. Watch the rapture happen, and, and, and God goes, Joe, come with me. Like, oh, no. <laughs> don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until there's an, a falling away, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. You say, well, I know who the Antichrist is. Really? Who? Who's taken over the whole world? Who is it? The man, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He's telling them about something in the future that Jesus preached about, saying, you want to know when it's getting close? When you see that, look up and be watchful. Your redemption's drawing near. Okay, Joe, you sold it too hard. I know, I always do. I'm sorry. One more and we'll stop. I promise. Mark 13. Take a left. Go back to the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's so quiet in here. It's because most of you aren't even awake. Okay, Matthew chapter, what did I say? Thir uh, Mark, sorry. Mark 13. Mark 13. What verse, Joe? 24 to 27. Gee, it's the parallel passage to what we read in Matthew 24. Jesus is talking about the end times. Verse Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, again, that's thalipsis, it's tribulation, it's the same word. The sun will be darkened. Oh, this sounds familiar. Yes, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels, clouds, visible coming. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Same passage, uh, same way of saying it, but a little more clearly. Um, let's see, uh, heaven and earth will pass away. Okay, let's go back to Revelation. I just wanted to cover that. Um, it does sound like a thousand years to me. Uh, go back to Revelation chapter 20. So there's thrones and there's some people that are being uh, given authority to judge. And in verse 4, 
It is, we know it's believers. We know it is not angels judging the world. We know that it is also um, the 24 elders. And we see the martyrs of the tribulation. So it's after the tribulation. And there was the first resurrection. Verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. Everybody that's raised in that first resurrection will never be sent to the lake of fire to heaven. That's the second death. The second death has no power over them, but they will be, this is all believers, priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a, there it is again, insignificantly long period of time. No, thousand years, right? Okay. Look at verse seven. If you haven't had enough thousand years yet, when the thousand years are over, do you get the feeling John's kind of like trying to like, hello, it's a thousand years, people. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Another battle against who? Against Jesus. He, and people are crazy enough to think, I think you have a chance, Satan. Even though one angel captured you before in a second, maybe they don't know about that. And, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. You know what that tells you? It's not a little rebellion of 161 dudes. Quite a few people. Who would be dumb enough to jump on board for this <clears throat> little last try by Satan? Number one, there will be some unbelievers who will live through, not many, the tribulation. They will go into the millennium alive, able to marry and have children. Um, there are believers, there are scholars who think believers can have children during the millennium. I'm not that sure about that one. I don't think so. Um, but there will be um, some unbelievers there. They have children whose children have children. In a thousand years, you can make a lot of babies. Some of these people are willing to rebel against uh, Satan, as I, uh, against God with Satan. As I said, it, two reasons for letting this happen on God's part, show you how evil Satan really is and how stupid and how dumb and how evil mankind really is. Um, the depravity of man. Um, yeah, we made it. We talked about that. Proof that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Gog and Magog, shall we? And then we're getting close to the end of our time. Uh, let me find that verse. Verse 8. They're going to go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. Okay, what's going on here? Ezekiel 38 and 39. Anybody familiar with 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, a few people are. There's a weird battle there that has not occurred ever in history. It's prophecy. Don't read it tonight. Uh, don't read it now. Go home and read it tonight. Ezekiel 38 and 39, you want the short version? A bunch of nations um, that surround Israel and are close to Israel get together and say, Let's go wipe out the Jews in Israel. 
okay? Some of the nations are identifiable. Um, to the north, it sounds like Russia with Iran, and I won't go into all the nations right now. Anyway, this has never happened. They invade Israel, and they're wiped out. Oh, Israel has a good army. Israel never fires a shot. It says God basically says, nope, and stops them. And in a horrible way, they all die. Hasn't ever happened in history. What are you saying? Is this that battle? No, but Gog and Magog are <clears throat> mentioned there. That's why I mentioned this. I believe this will occur just before the tribulation starts. Um, as a way of waking up Israel, because 38 and 39 of Ezekiel are in their Bible, they're going to see we're outnumbered. Oh no, here they come, and God's going to take them all out, and they're going to their faith is going to revive, and many will believe. Okay, so Gog and Magog um, is a general name for those northern nations that were enemies of Israel. Um, Ezekiel says. Um, Magog is that name, and Gog is their prince or leader. It's just sort of a, a generic name for the enemies of God, um, which again, history repeats itself kind of thing in this passage in Revelation. Um, Josephus says the nation of Magog from long ago became the Scythians or the Turks, modern day Turkey. Is that what it is? I don't know. Uh, but I'm throwing it out there for you at no extra charge if you order now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, to gather them for battle in number, they're like the sand of the seashore. Verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. You got the picture? Where are they? All around Jerusalem in a big, broad, plain area. The, the topography has been changed drastically during the tribulation. We talked about that with all the bulls and all that stuff. They march together, a bunch of different armies. They've had it, they want Israel. Around the camp of God's people, the city he loves, Jerusalem. I'm still in verse nine. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is the devil with his little band of rebels taking one last shot at Jesus and his kingdom, which has been a thousand years of peace and blessing on the earth. And the devil, verse 10, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, the lake of fire, hell, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They, plural, what do you mean they? the devil, the false prophet, and the antichrist will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell is eternal. The words for forever and ever in Greek are the same words for eternal life. We will experience life with God forever and ever. You're going to see that in chapter 21 and 22. We're going to quit for now. I know there's questions in your mind, but we'll kind of review this before we move on next time. Anyway, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father, for this time we could study your word together and 
How exciting. It's been one bummer after another for chapters 6 through 19. All these bowls and seals and trumpets and people dying and a third of the world and the grass being burned up and the water turned to blood. And then comes Jesus, the second coming in chapter 19 and the resurrection unto life for the believers. What an awesome thing, God. But beyond that, you fulfill all the scriptures, and we'll look at them next week, about the reigning of Jesus, the Messiah, on the earth, and the, the beautiful world that becomes of it. This is not the eternal state. It's only the thousand years, and then the eternal state comes in chapters 21 and 22. We know that. But God, thank you that you have said it. You've predicted it. It will happen just this way. May we, as we go through the trials, the tribulations, the pain, the sickness, whatever uh, is coming our way or is in our way right now, may we remember that the greatest, the best is yet to come. The Lord Jesus returning to the earth, the resurrection from the dead, and life in an absolutely perfect world. Thank you for your word, God. This is you tying up every loose end and we're almost done. We pray that these truths would be cemented in our minds. We might be going through some tough times in the future. May we remember this, God, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Indeed, it is the light of the world, your son, Jesus Christ. Bless these truths to our hearts and we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. And those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know, those of you that are here. And uh, God bless you all on Zoom. We'll see you next time, hopefully. God bless. Thanks.